Psalms this summer, but we're going to be looking at this passage just this morning. Preschoolers who participate in children's church can be dismissed at this time and uh, leave the sanctuary through the back door. And the pastor can be dismissed to get his study notes. Okay. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 42 through 47. And uh, I want to say again just a a welcome to those who are visiting. We're very glad to have you here and uh, are encouraged about that. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. This is a passage that every Christian tradition likes. Now, I don't know what passages different Christian traditions don't like, but what I mean is just anywhere in the spectrum of how different church traditions do church, they like this passage. I mean, whether you are way, way out there, just super high ritual, liturgical vestments and incense, way to that direction, or whether you are the people that the Pentecostals kicked out. They're way to the, like, just let it all hang out on the other side. Everybody in between loves this passage. And I think that, that, that when you read it, it's both encouraging, and it, but, it, but there's kind of a pain of longing that, man, that's the way it should be. That really is the way it should be. That, that's what I wish the church around the world was. That's how I wish that my local church was. But the question is, how do you get it? How do you get it? Now, since we're just kind of dropping into a book, and then I'm this is, I'm going to be in a different book next week. Let me just say a little context here. This is Acts chapter 2, and it's going to say, they did this and they did that. Who are they? They are this large group of people, thousands of people, who were in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And the, the, the famous account in Acts chapter 2 is how that, that is when something that Jesus promised would happen after he left happened. It was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we, we now call that Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's poured out. Miracles take place. Uh, people speak in languages that they had never learned. Not just babbling, but speaking in known languages to people who speak those languages. Telling them the gospel without having to learn the language first. It was a miracle. It happened publicly. There's eyewitnesses. And so everyone knows something unbelievably important has just happened. And the Apostle Peter stands up and, and sort of explains what happens. He preaches a sermon and is very confrontational with this group of thousands of people. And there are all these conversions. It says that 3,000 people became Christians that day, right then. 3,000. And right after you learn that fact, it describes their life together, and it's this account, starting in verse 42. Now, here's what I want to warn you against. What I want to warn you against is reading this and thinking of these people as flannel board characters. And if you don't have a church background, when I say flannel board, this is probably more my generation and older, is, you know, this was like the Sunday school prop. And, you know, the the static electricity on the flannel board lets you put the little paper characters up there and they stick to it. And, you know, in some ways you never get over the flannel board. Moses still looks like the flannel board Moses. Paul still looks like the flannel board Paul. I'm, you know, I'm marked for life. But I want you to think that when it says they, I want you to picture single moms. 
I want you to picture um, people who struggle with sadness. I want you to picture uh, unemployed men. Now, I would say women to make it equal, but just it was a different world. Not many women were employed, but there were unemployed men. Uh, picture the woman who is now, she's hitting 60 and she kind of wonders, besides my family, who do I matter to? When it says they, that's who it means. It's not pretend Bible people. And I want to say this again. Churches spend literally millions of dollars to, to get in their churches what we're about to read about. They had it, but how? That's the question. How? Acts chapter 2 starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together... And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, what we need now is not a nice talk. What we need is a word from you. We don't merely want to read these words. We want to eat them so that they become part of who we are. We remember Jesus saying that you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So as we have these words from your mouth, enable us to hear and digest them and be changed by you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. My, uh, My first year here, with downtown Prez, I got a call one day, pretty sure it was my first year, and picked up the phone, said hello, and it was a lady's voice, and she said, are you the pastor of downtown Presbyterian? And I said, I am. And she said, well, I want to ask you a question. And I said, okay. She said, is your church for real? Have you ever been asked something and you kind of feel like somebody is standing with a bat over their shoulder, like, you know, like almost putting it up to your head for a clear strike? I had the feeling that I was being set up and I didn't know what she meant by for real. So I said, well, can you, can you tease that out some, what you mean? And what she went on to explain was that she and her husband had been missionaries. And when they were raising support, financial support, to, to go on the missions field, they would send these support letters out to churches. And, and overwhelmingly, they never heard back from the churches. There was no response. There was no answer. She said that they wouldn't even get back in touch with us just even to say that we're praying for you. Like, we can't give you money, but we'll pray. They didn't even do that. And, and then as she taught, what I realized was that she had seen the word downtown in our name. And now that word has different connotations to different people, but it was very evident the longer I talked with her that the connotation, the connotation, was multi-ethnic. Multi-ethnic. That that was extremely important to her. Now, it is important in the Bible, but I could tell this wasn't just a thing. It was 
the thing. And so we talked for a while, and I finally said, you know what, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I think that we will frustrate you. And what I was thinking was, I know we will frustrate you. And I don't want to be uncharitable, but, but the reason was, I think every church from here on out is going to frustrate her. Uh, what, here's why. Here's why I say that. One, probably the classic work of the last hundred years or so about not just having church, but being the church, having this life together as a body, was by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, called Life Together. A bunch of you um, got that earlier this year and read it, and I, and I got a lot of great feedback from you about it. Listen to one thing that Bonhoeffer, he's a Lutheran pastor, he was killed by the Nazis uh, not long before the end of World War II. Here's what he says, and listen to this. Because this may be describing you, and you didn't know it until now. Innumerable, uh, innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. And Germans love to like stockpile terms together, so there you go. It's a wish dream. The serious Christian sat down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize it. And he goes on to say this, every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. And did you hear that? If we come into, instead of using the word community, if we come into a local church and we have this strong, strong, dominating mental picture of how it must look, and then we come in and we love our picture more than the actual people we find there, he says, we become the destroyer of the community. Now, last statement here. He says that when, when this kind of person who has this wish dream, when they come into a local church and it doesn't live up to their expectations because it's a fallen world, he says when his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to mash. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally he is the accuser of himself. And I, I think that most pastors have, have had a front row seat to that. But the pastor can do it too. Where this is, this is the kind of church I want to pastor, and when the people don't live up to it, he's angry at them, and he's angry at God. And then maybe finally he's angry at himself. Why couldn't you produce people like that? But we can all do this. This word community, how long should I say? 20 years ago was not as much a buzzword as it is now. I think 20 years ago it, it sounded more technical and a little bit more stilted, and now it's cool. And everybody wants to talk about community. I was watching Hurricane Irene footage on the Weather Channel yesterday. And the Weather Channel, and I love the Weather Channel, props to the Weather Channel. But the Weather Channel said, it's during times like this that the Weather Channel becomes a community. And I'm just sitting in you know, my room thinking, I just kind of wanted to check on the, the track of the hurricane. I, I don't know that I'm bonding new, <laughs> forging new relationships. I just kind of wanted to see what the deal was on the, on the radar map. But how do you get it? 
Okay, so if we can't do that with the millions of people watching the Weather Channel, but we do have a local church, how do you get it? How do you get when millions have been spent to secure it uh, often unsuccessfully? And I want to look at three things from this text. Here's this group of brand new Christians. Uh, they They have so fewer resources than we do, but they get this life together that we envy. So first off, what did they do? How did they do it? How could they do it? What they did, how they did it, how they could do that. Okay, first off, what did they do? I want you to notice something here. Something that that a lot of you have heard me say is that Christians tend to have a default mode about what you think really matters in the Christian life. And I thought I was plagiarizing a friend of mine when he explained it this way, and I realized he was plagiarizing somebody else. So I guess it's public domain. But we'll talk about there's, there's big head Christians, there's big heart Christians, and there's big feet Christians. Okay? The big heads love learning, love teaching, love doctrine. Books, conferences, bring it on. The heart people love relationship, authentic connection, authentic experience. The big feet people Uh, We can't just sit around here and have all this learning and experience. We've got to get out there and do things, especially we've got to take care of the poor, take care, you know, uh, extend mercy, and we've got to do evangelism. We want lots of people to believe in Jesus. Now, I want you to notice how just right out of the gates, this church is hitting on all cylinders. Okay, where's the head? What's the first thing it says? Verse 42, they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. The first thing, these are the spirit-filled Christians that were present at Pentecost. The first thing it says is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the last quote I'm going to read. This is by John Stott, uh, a wonderful Christian man who died just weeks ago. He says this, Anti-intellectualism and the fullness of the spirit are mutually incompatible. If you're not into learning, if you're not into, why do we have to think so deeply about things? I just want to be spirit-filled. Stott says, that's not an option. Because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Nor did those early disciples imagine that because they had received the spirit, he was the only teacher they needed, and they could dispense with human teachers. On the contrary, they sat at the apostles' feet, hungry to receive instruction, and they persevered in it. But the big head people are getting the apostles' teaching. So you got that. What about the heart? What about that's an upside down heart? Okay, what about the heart? I'm, I'm, I'm remembering a, a Justin Bieber documentary that my family watched, and I, and I just had a horrific moment for just a second. Let's pull back. <laughs> okay, verse forty three. It says that all came upon every soul. Now again, across traditions, we don't want worship to be boring. And we don't want the living of the Christian life out there the rest of the week to be boring. We want a sense that I am dealing with things that are massive and that fill me with this combination of uh, fear and profound joy. Well, that's all. They had it before God. And what about what they had with each other from the heart? Man, it says in verse 42 uh, that they had the fellowship. When, when the translation that uh, we use, the ESV, when it first came out, I think that 
at that little spot in verse 42 that it just said, and fellowship. And I think it's been a later correction to put the in there, because that's in the Greek. The fellowship does not mean the way Bible belters tend to think about it. You know, I had a friend that was at an insurance lunch one time in Mississippi. It's, just an in, it's not even Christian insurance lunch. It's just an insurance lunch. And um, a friend of his was called on to pray before the lunch. First, okay, first Bible Belt evidence that at an insurance lunch somebody's asked to pray. And they're going to do it in Jesus' name. But as the guy was praying, and I mean, you know, not to fault him, but he said, Lord, we, we thank you that we can come together and we can fellowship like this. And, you know, my friend said, the word fellowship has become what we do over lunch at the insurance lunch. But the fellowship in the New Testament is something much deeper, much richer. It's, it's sharing on two fronts is to say, do you believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rescued you? I do too. Were you loved before the foundations of the world by the Father? For no reason in you, I was too. Did God the Son come rescue you with His life and death and resurrection? He did me too. Does the Holy Spirit dwell in you to change us? He dwells in me too. That is the first sharing. But then there's actually the sharing of life. Literally sharing your money, your time, uh, your abilities, your gifts, your interests, your conversation. So the heart people are going, cha-ching. Connection. Connection publicly. Connection in smaller settings. Connection one-on-one. What about the big feet people? It talks about that people are liquidating their possessions. If anybody has need and they're sharing their stuff, mercy ministry is going on. And it says at the end of the passage in verse 47 that the Lord added to their number how often? Every single day. Every single day people became new Christians. That is an evangelist's dreams come true. Now notice that each of these behaviors was a thing. None of the behaviors was the thing. Let me say that again. Each of these behaviors is a thing. None of the behaviors was the thing. Think about it another way. There was formal and there was informal. Where do you see that? Look in verse, um, let's see. Look in verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. People kept going to the temple at the set times of prayer for the Jewish community. They didn't stop doing that when they became Christians. They'd go and they'd pray, and it says they prayed the prayers in verse 42. That means prior prayers that were known. Maybe the Psalms. Maybe other psalms that had, other prayers that had been written and established by the Jewish community, they continued to pray those even as they believed that they were praying to Jesus and that Jesus was the fulfillment of all this stuff. They did not stop going. They didn't stop praying the prayers. They went to the temple every day, but they also hung out at home. They would sit and have meals together and just love Jesus together. Now, I... I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but, but let's, let's stop and think. What is, for you, your biggest point of frustration with the local church right now? And you may be visiting, so it may not be this one, but you may be 
a member who's been here longer than I have. And it's very much about downtown Presbyterian. When you think about, you know, our, I don't know if I can stay in this church because we can't seem to get, get it together with fill in the blank. That fill in the blank probably for you has become the thing in your heart. And if that is not a thing, if it becomes the thing, it can actually destroy the real experience of community that you're craving. Right, now that's, that's just that's their behaviors. That's what they did. How did they do it? And I don't mean methodology, but what I mean is what was the manner of it? A couple of things. First off, it was intentional and it was unnatural. It was intentional and it's unnatural. Um, what is the verb that Luke uses? Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and he also wrote Acts. When Luke says that they did these things, he says, verse 42, what? And they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. Think about it this way. How do you know when you have gone from being a person who exercises sometimes to someone who's devoted to exercise? How do you know? When you buy cute workout clothes? No. A lot of posers get cute workout clothes. And we know that. We know that. And some of us are those people. You're devoted when you plan things around it. In other words, if your friend calls to do something when you're thinking about exercising and you go do the thing with the friend, you're not devoted to it. If you tell the friend, I can't do it then because I'm working out, can we do it later? You're devoted to it. And Luke says this was not something that was forced on them by the apostles. Everything from praying prayers to the temple to the Lord's Supper. When it says the breaking of bread, it's probably shorthand for the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, but hospitality and just being glad together and making Christ known to other people. They were intentional about it. It... It didn't receive energy that was left over after all the other commitments. It was the commitments. These were the commitments. So it's intentional. It's also unnatural. And why do we say unnatural? Um, I, I just I mentioned this just in passing at the beginning, or at least I meant to. But it says in Acts chapter 2, at the beginning of that chapter, that the people that were here in Jerusalem for Pentecost were from every nation under heaven. And it, it lists some of the particular areas. And it really was from all over the known world. Now, you know, I mean, birds of a feather flock together. And one of the reasons that churches tend, for instance, not to be multi-ethnic is that we tend to gravitate toward a place that is like us. I've heard someone use the abbreviation PLUs, people like us, that we gravitate toward PLUs and not toward others. Well, we're talking there are different ethnicities, different cultural practices, different cultural norms. Now, what do they share? They share Judaism. But that doesn't mean they really connect at a heart level. I mean, you think about, um, think about Holy Week at the Vatican where just 
thousands and thousands and thousands of people converge from all over the world on the Vatican. What do they share? Roman Catholicism. Does that mean they all become best friends and share life together? No. No more than I share life with all the other Weather Channel viewers. They share something they possess or believe in, but that doesn't mean they're really just tied at the hip. But they were tied at the hip across ethnic lines, cultural lines, socioeconomic lines. Now, let me say this. Um, It has been the widespread practice, I can't speak internationally, but it's been the widespread practice of the American church to have lots of things that we could call age and stage. Meaning, if you're this old, and this is where you are in life, we're going to like put everybody that's in that box in that box, and that's how our church will minister to you. And that, that could mean children, but it continues on later into life. It's we're going to put singles here, and newlyweds here, and then kind of young marriage with children here, and then, we're going to, and then we're going to come up with cool names for the older group that doesn't sound like the older group. You know, seasoned travelers or, or, or whatever. And like, there'll be that class. Now, and here's the deal. You know, I was just saying this to somebody uh, uh, recently that I was in a youth group. I, that my, youth, my high school youth group was an age and stage group. It was really only for high schoolers. And God used it tremendously in my life. However, as I'm further removed from it, and I think about the other people God has brought into my life, different ages, men and women, some with a lot more money, and some with a lot less, and other races, and think about, man, if I had just been cordoned off with people that had my interests, they were where I am in life, and never had access to them uh, how, how undernourished, how impoverished I would be. And they got to experience the richness of how it can be right out of the chute as new Christians. So how could they do this? I mean, if this is enviable and we would want this for a local church, how could they do it? Now, this is summing up a lot in a little bit of space. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, it describes that earlier in that chapter, Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon. But it's not, at many levels, an encouraging sermon. Because at one point, the gist of the sermon is this. Guess what happened? This Messiah, you know, that Jerusalem has been waiting on, God sent the long-awaited Messiah, not to just any city in the world. But as we're standing in here in Jerusalem, I want you to understand this. God sent the long-awaited Messiah to you, and you killed Him. And Luke records that when they heard that, the expression he uses is they were cut to the heart. It was not a sense of yeah, I know, we, we all, some of us, we blow it sometimes. It was, you did the most unthinkable, evil, wicked thing. You who have the most revelation did the worst thing that could be done. You killed the Messiah. And they cry out, what do we do? 
Hold it together. Okay, I have the tiger. <clears throat> they asked the perfect guy. They asked the perfect guy. They asked the guy who lived with Jesus for three years. He said, I would never betray you. I'd never leave you. I'll die before I do any of those things. Betrayed him. Not betrayed him. Denied him. Ran off. Virtually betrayed him. Verbally. And Jesus forgave him. When Jesus needed him most, he denied Jesus. And when he returned to Jesus, Jesus forgave him. And Peter, with what we might call expert knowledge, stands up in front of this crowd and says, I mean, they're just cut. He just rebuked them. What do we do? He says, repent and be baptized. And you'll receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And do you understand what he just said? If you're a Jesus killer, you need Jesus. If you kill Jesus, you need Jesus. He says, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit that made this <laughs> gathering of people just turn it upside down with different languages and joy and this sense that something miraculous just happened, He will fill you. Now, still we're left with the question, but they were there for that, and we weren't. How do we have this? How do we have this? I have, okay, I, I have mixed feelings about using an example from um, the movie The Passion of the Christ that came out several years ago that Mel Gibson did. Mixed feelings for that, but I, I want to mention one scene that I think is informative. After Jesus has died on the cross and they take his body down, there's a scene where Mary is, is she's, she's holding his body. She's kneeling on the ground holding his corpse. And then she looks up and she stares straight into the camera. And the camera pans back. And I, I remember reading a review when it first came out and, and the reviewer said, you realize what she's doing, don't you? She's looking at her son's murderer. Martin Luther said, we carry his nails in our pockets. We carry his nails. We sing a hymn here, uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, and you may have sung it without thinking that I hear my voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there. We killed him with our sin. Had there never been another generation of sinners, we did it. Has that ever cut your heart? You know, when, when like just happened now, when new members of our church come into our church, what we try to discern is, do you have an understanding of the gospel? Do you have a profession of faith that sounds like the historic Christian faith? Because we're gathered around the gospel. But we cannot, we, elders, cannot discern, have you ever been cut to the heart? You cannot produce that for you any more than I can produce that for me. God has to cut the heart. 
But has that ever happened in you? If it has not, the gospel will always seem somewhat detached and academic and, and, the, and sort of the default sentence in your heart will be, yeah, I, I do need to give that more attention in my life. But oh, when God finally cuts the heart, you see that I am culpable. And then you see that the remedy is the very man that I killed, that my sin killed. That is joy. And Peter could say to us what he said to that, to that crowd. If you repent and turn to Him and believe, not only will He forgive you for everything we've done and everything that we will do that's sinful, but you will receive the Holy Spirit so that you can change from the inside out. Will we, will we be perfect? Will we be sinless? No, not till the new heavens and the new earth, but He will change us. Now think about the implications of that for us wanting to be the church instead of have church. In your experience of church life, be honest. What is it like for you? Do you think, you know what, I like a good sermon. I cannot stand community groups. Is it a sin not to like community groups? No. However... If we ask the question, why do you not like community groups? Well, it's just because I pro- the predicate is probably a sin. It's just an unbiblical sense that, you know, I don't know. Th- I'm so busy. I don't know that I have the time. I don't know that I need these people when the scriptures are screaming, yes, we do. Or I love my community group. Sunday mornings are very long for me. I hear you. Or, you know, I I like going into that room. It's encouraging. It's uplifting. But I don't want to really, like, have lunch with people. Or I don't want to invite people into my life. Let's keep it nice on Sundays, and then I'm out of here. Here's the good news. What, What do we need? We need Jesus Jesus died because, among other things, I do not want to be bothered. Jesus died because I do not want to weep with those who weep. I want to be with the people that I like and have fun. I don't want to share life. I don't want to share money. I don't want to be known deeply. I don't want to help the poor. I don't want to liquidate what I have. I don't want to tell people about Jesus unless all the circumstances are perfect, which they almost never are. Repent. Repent. We need to turn to Jesus and say, I need cleansing. And I need your Holy Spirit to change me from the inside out. Man, the Holy Spirit, listen, the Holy Spirit can make introverts. This was a dark time for introverts. Acts chapter 2. God can make introverts move toward other people. God can make extroverts relate more deeply rather than manage everyone and give their heart away. He can do it. But we are to repent. Let me end with this. And I've mentioned this before in different contexts, but I'm going to mention it again. When uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about when one of his very, very close friends died, 
It's a guy named Charles Williams. And uh, Charles Williams was a writer. He and Lewis were very, very connected. And he said, when Charles died, something happened that I could not have anticipated. Um, I thought that at some level when Charles died, I would then have more of, let's say, this mutual friend over here. We lost him, but now we have more of each other. And he said, "You you know what I found? Is I now have less of the remaining friend. Because Charles drew this entire aspect of who this friend is out of him. It was Charles that could do it. And when Charles left, I lost that part of the remaining friend. Didn't know that that would happen. Now think about this. Think about, in that illustration, if the remaining friend is Jesus, and if Charles is the body of Christ... There are seasons in our life where we tell ourselves, you know what, I've been pushing hard. I'm going to pull back for several weeks, months, and I'm just going to have just me and Jesus, and I'm going to give this a break for a while. And I would say that spikes in the summer big time. What you will find, this may be going on in your heart right now. What you will find is that rather than have more of Jesus... You have less. You lose that thing that came through the person who always hugs you even when you don't want them to. You lost that thing that happened at the Lord's Supper. You lost that thing that happened when you sit beside somebody in worship that you don't know. You lost it. And friends, I want to say this with the authority of God's Word. I do not want more church programs for you. I want us to have joy. And fullness of joy is in Jesus, but fullness of Jesus is through others. Let's pray together. Our Father, would you make of us a real community? not in the sense of some uh, buzzword that we've heard that we think we're supposed to use. Would you cause us to truly be tied at the hip and that you'll show us what that means for Sundays, that you'll show us what that means for hospitality, that you'll show us what that means for small groups of people, show us what that means for being intentional about coffee or lunches or dinners. Lord, not so that we can be busier, but that we might have the fullness of Christ in our experience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.